Fiona. And I'm Sam. Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We interviewed Lindsay Hayes, who is the founder and CEO of Free the Facts, a nonpartisan NGO focused on engaging and educating the rising generation on Social Security, Medicare, and student loans. She's also a distinguished speechwriter, serving on the speechwriting teams for Alaska Senator Ted Stevens and 2008 Republican Vice Presidential Candidate Sarah Palin and Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. One of my favorite parts about this interview is really getting the nitty-gritty day-to-day on what it's like being a speechwriter for a principal, from an elected senator like Ted Stevens to being a speechwriter on the campaign trail, stumping up until Election Day. It really gives a unique and cool insight into what that's like. I definitely agree, Sam. I loved hearing some of her stories about when she was working as a speechwriter for Sarah Palin and Mitt Romney. There are some fun ones in there. So before we dive into our conversation with Lindsay Hayes, regular listeners, you know the drill. Follow us on social media by searching at Fly on the Wall Pod, and shoot us an e- email at our Georgetown University email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to the pod on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts by searching Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast. And while you're there, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. Now let's catch the buzz from Lindsay Hayes. Lindsay Hayes, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. Thank um, you. And so just to start off, tell us a little bit about um, how you got to where you are today. What first got you interested in politics and public policy? Uh, well, I've been interested in politics and public policy really since I was a kid. I grew up in Massachusetts, which is the home of uh, you know the Kennedy dynasty. Uh, and when I was growing up, Michael Dukakis was the governor, and so he ran for president. So it was kind of all around us. You know, we were very, um, you know, very much kind of felt like we were in this moment in history in that state um, between kind of the historical precedent of JFK and then, you know, having our own governor, um, pretty part of the national dialogue. Uh, but you know, we we debated a lot and the at the family table a lot of a lot of issues. I think a lot of people have that experience when they're interested in in politics and in public life and um, and in kind of civic questions. You know, the things that you know my my parents were very civically engaged, not politically engaged, but civically engaged. Um, and so we would a lot of times you know sit after dinner and have conversations and. Uh, you know, my parents and my two siblings and I and kind of talk about things. And so I just I really had an interest in those things from a pretty young age. Um, but I didn't necessarily think about them as political. I just thought about them as interesting events and questions um, that I had. And you have particular experience in speech writing, um, assisting with John McCain's um, 2008 speeches and Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential run. So do you have any favorite memories from these campaign days? I do. Actually, in 2008, so I was a late addition to the McCain campaign. Um, I had been the senior writer at the Republican National Convention um, for the lead up to the convention in 2008. I had gone out. I had moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, packed up my bags without very much notice or thought, as it turned out, and, uh, and moved there. And I was there for about five months. And I was the senior writer. And on the last Last night of the convention, and this is probably my favorite memory, on the last night of the convention, I was called down. I had interned at the White House under George W. Bush. That's where I kind of got my start. I was a researcher um, in the speechwriting operation. And there was a there were a couple writers there that were you know went on to become very well known, um, and one of them is a guy by the name of Matthew Scully, 
And I had had limited interaction with Matthew as a research intern. I think I brought him research maybe two or three times. But he was John McCain's chief speechwriter in 2008. And he had heard that I was on the top floor of the convention hall working as the senior writer. And so he called me up and he invited me down to watch John McCain give his acceptance speech from behind the stage on the last night of the convention. Um, So that was one of my favorite memories because uh, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it was historic. It's pretty incredible to be, you know, feet away from a nominee as they're accepting uh, the nomination of their party to run for president. I had deep respect for John McCain, um, you know, prisoner of war. And I had worked in the Senate when he had been a senator there. And so um, I had a lot of respect for him as a leader and as a person and as an American. Uh, so to get to see him to deliver that speech was pretty incredible. And then to be standing with the speechwriter. <laughs> uh, but I also, uh, as we were standing there and waiting for John McCain to come out on the stage, uh, Matthew was asking me questions about what I was planning to do next because the convention was wrapping up. And I said, you know, honestly, I kind of moved out here without a lot of thought and uh, <laughs> and just took the job. And so I'm going to move back to D.C. tomorrow, back to my house. And uh, and so my plan is to maybe take a nap and pack my bags and then go <laughs> home. And he said, well, that's a good plan. But how about instead of that, you become the speechwriter for Sarah Palin, who had just accepted the night before as the VP nominee. And I said, yeah, that sounds way better than a nap and a drive home. Uh, and so that's how I got the job on the, the McCain campaign. So I traveled with Governor Palin as the VP nominee for the, for the next two and a half months through the general. Yeah, I'd love to zoom in sort of in the, on that world of speech writing a little bit more. What, what goes into that both, you know, at the convention and on the campaign trail? What does a typical day in the life of a speechwriter look like? Uh, there is no typical day in the life of a speechwriter, which is part of the reason I loved the job so much, is, you know, you if you're a policy person, right, you really focus deeply on one set of issues or one area. What I loved about being a speechwriter is I didn't set that agenda. It was, you know, the speeches either we needed to give them because we've been invited and there was a message we wanted to convey or the moment itself was calling for a certain type of speech with a certain type of policy content. In it. And as a result, I got to learn about all kinds of stuff over the course of, you know, 25 years. I got to learn about, uh, I can remember the, the, one, of the first, um, one of the first assignments I got when I arrived at the U.S. Senate and I was working for Ted Stevens, who was from Alaska. I'd never been to Alaska. I, the only thing I knew about Alaska was that they had snow, which I assumed wrongly looked like the snow we had in Massachusetts. There's a lot more snow in Alaska. Um, but... I, they have a lot of very specific issues to the state, and, uh, and one of them is forestry issues. So the first week that I was there, someone stopped in my, uh, at my desk and said, uh, we're going to need to go to the floor. We've got an amendment. There's a, a beetle that's an invasive species, and it's attacking all these uh, trees in Alaska. And I said, no problem. I'm on it. You know, And I spent the next three days trying to learn all about this beetle and you know, what the problem was and why we couldn't cut the trees down and what the amendment was. Um, and that was great. And then the next week I was on to something else. And so that's one of the great things I think about being a speechwriter is if you're somebody who 
is just naturally curious about lots of different topics, it's a great gig because you get to learn about all kinds of things and you get to talk to experts who know all about that stuff. You basically have carte blanche to call up anybody and say, I'm working on this. Can you tell me? And they are dying to tell you, especially if it's about a beetle in some trees. (laughs) No one has ever called them to ask them about that. Um, And it's great. These people are so interesting. They devote their lives to these subjects. And so I really loved that. And then I loved taking that information that I gathered and figuring out how to help a principal, you know, a candidate or an office holder, how to condense that down into uh, a a message that people could understand no matter how much they knew about the issue or not. And that really kind of told the perspective of, of what the speaker was trying to convey. Yeah. And over the past two decades, American politics has shifted quite a bit. So what has the shifting nature of American politics look like from your point of view? It's interesting because I have two points of view, right? So for about 25 years, I worked in the more institutional formal side where I was on campaigns and I was participating in elections and I was, you know, in the White House and the in the Senate. I worked in a cabinet agency for a bit. And um, and that looked really different. I was able to see the evolution when I first came. This is like kind of embarrassing. But when I first came onto Capitol Hill um, when, and when I was working in the White House, uh, you know, social media was not really a thing. I can remember uh, Senator Stevens coming to me about a year uh, of working after about a year of working on Capitol Hill. And he said, some of the guys you know, and gals have a podcast. Should I be getting or not a podcast, a blog? Should I be getting a blog? <laughs> And I said, when I find out what that is, I will let you know, you know. And so it and then, of course, we've had so much technological change um, since then that that I don't think has always really worked to the benefit of American public discourse or American leadership. So I definitely um, by the time I left the Senate, uh, Ted Stevens was giving a lot of speeches about a decline in civility, you know, themes that would be very common now. But as a matter of fact, when he was giving them, which was, you know, around two. 2004. It was really new. Not a lot of people were talking about that, but he was seeing the signs because he had been in the Senate for so long and he could see this deterioration in the relationships that members had in the quality of the discussion and debate and deliberation on the Senate floor uh, in just kind of the the beginnings of a, of a erosion in deliberative democracy in lots of ways. Um, and so on that side, I would say that's been the negative side. This is That's kind of been the negative development that I've seen over the last several years. On the positive side, what I've seen in the last seven years as I've been working outside of those more formal structures or institutions and working through a nonprofit is I've seen American citizens really step up and I think fill the gap where leadership has failed. Um, you know, most Americans are actually in my experience, and I've now met with thousands of them over the last seven years, they're really actually very willing to have conversations and to learn about things. And they're actually very respectful of other people's sincerely held beliefs. I think most Americans, they're frustrated by what they see in the more formal leadership institutions and positions. And I think there's a lot of Americans that are really rising up and taking their role as citizens really seriously. And I think that's always been our great strength is that even when leadership falters historically, the American people as citizens take their role in democracy pretty seriously. um, And they do the work when the leaders don't. And that's been actually really nice to see. Mm. And so zooming in on this national shift, from you know leader to to uh, 
person in civil, in civil society. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd love to zoom in a little bit on your own personal path there. Mm -hmm. um, you, of course, in 2016 founded your own NGO, Free the Facts, mm -hmm. after coming from a background in campaigning and speech writing. And so what prompted that shift from the political world on the Hill to founding this NGO? Well, here's what happened. So in 2012, uh, I was the director of speech writing on the Romney campaign, and we didn't win. So it had been my second national uh, campaign, my second presidential campaign back to back. And, uh, and my party was not winning. And I didn't think that was my fault. <laughs> but I also got to the point where I wasn't sure that I was really well positioned to be part of the solution. I didn't have the answers about why we were disconnecting with our message. And you always hear that, right? What, what's the issue? Is it the communication side of the house or is it the policy side of the house? Is it that the policies, you, you, no matter how good a speech you give, it, you're never going to be able to convince people that it's good because the policies are flawed? Or is it that you're just failing to connect with people, but you have the right policies? And so I wanted to get a little bit more perspective about that, not from within the campaign bubble, but by observing an election, which was 2020, or I'm sorry, 2016, by just sitting that one out and observing it just as a regular citizen, just watching it unfold as a voter. And, uh, and I, I also knew that I wanted to have a child. And so, uh, and so I decided that I was going to take that time and start a family and just kind of you know, just see what the experience was like and see what I could learn by being on the outside of the campaign as opposed to being on the inside of it. And I fully expected in 2020 that I would come back and I would start working campaigns again. But once I got out, uh, I started observing it, I think, in a different way. And I think it became really clear to me the, the kind of where the need was in 2014, 2015, 2016 was really different than where the need for people to step up and serve was when I started working in government and politics and speech writing in 2000. And that you really didn't need another speech writer writing a soundbite. Uh, that I, I thought I have some skills that I think could be of service and of use in places where there's greater needs. And there's not people who are out there already doing that kind of work. And so I was really fortunate. I ran uh, my own writing firm called Red Path Writing, and I got a client through that. And the client came to me, um, actually Lan He Chen, who was the domestic, who was the policy director on the Romney campaign. He first went to him and said, I, this is what I want to do. I want to go to college campuses, and I want to talk to students about some of these policy issues that I think are going to be really important over the course of their lifetimes. And I'm not a partisan. I'm not left. I'm not not right. I'm really agnostic on the solution. It doesn't, whatever they decide is the right thing to do, but I just think they should have good information. And I think it's really hard to find that. You know, we're kind of drowning in information on the internet, but we don't know who to trust. Uh, we don't know what's reliable. Anytime you find a source, then somebody will tell you there's a problem with that source. And so he said, that, that's really all I want to do. And so uh, Lan He said to him, well, that's great. I'll, I'll help you navigate the, the policy sphere on that, but you're going to give speeches. You need to get a speechwriter. And so he was directed to me. And so this started as a speechwriting client. It was somebody who wanted to give some speeches and I and wanted to give it on college campuses. And I thought, this is great. And then as time went on, we realized that speeches probably weren't the long 20 minute speeches weren't the best way to connect with undergraduates. And so we put together a team of different people from different aspects of the kind of frankly, a campaign that you would normally run. And we decided, OK, what if our target audience was only college students? And what if all we were trying to do is not convince them of a particular solution, but give them that first piece, the piece I would get as a speechwriter when I get to sit down and talk with all the policy people? What if we just gave them that so that they had the information that they needed? And then 
we don't have to tell them what to think, you know, we just have to make sure that they can do the thinking on their own. And that's how it got started. So for a long time, it was a client. And then around 2018, I actually decided to do it full time. Um, because I was surprised, to be honest with you, when we did it for the first three months, we, we test everything. We test for uh, learning outcomes. I, I taught college for a long time, and so I had some experience in that area. And so I thought, okay, let's only do this if it's really making an impact and it's benefiting. Uh, benefiting people who are, you know, 14 to 25. And so we we did a lot of pre-surveys and post-surveys and focus groups. And uh, and what we found was there actually was a real need for this. And so it's been really, it is not where I would have thought my career went, but, I, but now that I look back on it, I realize there were so many aspects of my career that were really actually preparing me to do this. So I really feel fortunate to be able to spend my time on that. Mm. And just to um, follow up on the, the form and function of um, Free the Facts, mm-hmm. you know, you do these campus policy tours, but you're also very active on social media mm-hmm. um, and engaging students that way. Do you find, on pretty complex policy issues too, mm-hmm. um, and so I was just wondering if you had any reflections on finding ways to connect that, as you said, that, that first half of the speech writing about a policy issue and mm-hmm. getting it out, perhaps not through speeches. Mm-hmm. Um, do, is it difficult or easy other times? You're like, oh, you know, there's no way we can communicate X, Y, Z through an Instagram live or through a, a workshop. Right? Well, you're never going to be able to tell the whole story, right, through social media. And I think one of the big mistakes that we've done, we've one of our big mistakes generally as a country, as we think about how to use these new communication technologies to facilitate a debate and a conversation, is that we're asking these technologies to do things that they're not designed to do. Twitter is not designed to give you all the information that you need to have about Medicare for all. That's not what it's designed to do. It's designed for kind of a quick hit or an impression or a, hey, I wrote 450 words over here that you might want to check out about Medicare for all. That's probably better. So I think the biggest thing is that we should be looking at these social media uh, technologies not as the solution, any one solution to the conversation that we're trying to have, but they're all tools in the toolbox. And you wouldn't use a wrench to do what a hammer is meant to do, right? So there's always going to be a place for long-form speeches. There's always going to be a place now in the new environment for tweets and TikTok and Instagram and Instagram Live. And, you know, and it's in a lot of ways, it's been great because it democratizes the information, but you have to use the tool for the message that it's meant for. And the idea that we're going to come to some kind of, you know, greater understanding of one another as Americans or some kind of consensus about difficult policy problems over Twitter is, you know, kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so it has a function, but we have to realize that the technology is doing what it's capable of doing. And really, the, the goal here is to get us communicating on all these different platforms, including, and one that I think is the most important, in person. And so Free the Facts has always had from the very beginning and will always have a huge component where we show up, like you said, to college campuses and on policy tours, uh, where we bring experts into the room and we allow students to ask questions in an environment that's kind of free of judgment um, and doesn't assume that you know anything about the issue. You're free to ask whatever you want um, of a policy expert on the issue because there's really no replacing sitting and looking someone in the eye and them telling you, no, I'm really here because I just, I want to help you understand it. And then you know you can trust it. And I think that that's really been the big problem is this erosion of trust that we don't, you know, we think everybody's got a hidden agenda and that they're just trying to get us to do something. And uh, you need people out there doing the work. And a lot of that work has to happen in person so that you know the information that you're getting is reliable. 
And during a time of intense political polarization and a lack of trust in the media and the government, how do you navigate heading a nonpartisan group and fostering more trust? Well, I think one of the things that we do, first of all, we're very open uh, to critical feedback from people, and and we take that very seriously. So uh, one of the things that we control for when we do our focus groups and our surveys, pre and post surveys, when we go and we go to college campuses and we try to educate people about these issues, um, is we are always testing for preconceptions of bias or you know something that might create a lack of trust within the organization. And then we correct for that. Um, we also have really done a lot of work on making sure that we're bringing voices and uh, experts from both sides of the aisle. So you know, essentially the whole organization on the expert and on the staff side are people who have said, look, I, I wouldn't say we're nonpartisan. I mean, we are in terms of where we fit in the IRS code, but actually we're very pro-partisan. We want the full range of people to be in the discussion, not one side or another. We truly believe that through that kind of deliberation that can only happen with people from all walks of life with different viewpoints, different ideological commitments come together. If we hash it out and we do the hard work of that, we will get a better solution in the end. And so, uh, and so we've done a lot of work on partnering and bringing people into the fold that don't, you know, necessarily reflect one side of the aisle or the other. So I work really, really hard to try to achieve that balance. And one place we've done that is we have a policy advisory board. And that board is made up of uh, leading thinkers, former office holders, um, and other folks from both the left and the right. So, you know, if they're they're left leaning, they're familiar with the full range of debate, because right, the left isn't a monolithic left, the right isn't a monolithic right, there's debate within those ideological commitments as well. And we bring people who have a familiarity with that, and they come and they say, well, this is kind of the conversation around Medicare on our side of the aisle. This is the conversation over here. Okay, well, how, what could we all agree on would be a good way to educate people uh, about these issues? What's a fair representation that both sides of the aisle can agree on? And then what's a fair way of talking about the pros and cons of all the policy proposals that are out there? So we've worked really hard to expand the network of people that we advise with and we consult with. And then we try to get a lot of, uh, a lot of feedback from the, the students that we serve. And I think by doing both those things, we're never going to get it perfect. But we come pretty close, I think, most of the time to getting it right. Mm. And so shifting from you know, whom you're bringing into the conversation to what conversations you're having, you know, the three big um, policy issues that Free the Facts is currently focusing on is Social Security, Medicare, mm -hmm. and student loans. Yes. So why is that the trifecta? Why is that the place to start? Well, uh, we, are, are, we like to say we're getting America's brightest minds working on our biggest problems. And so for biggest problems, we went for the, uh, the most low-hanging fruit definition, which was the ones with the biggest price tag. Uh, because, you know, Social Security and Medicare are huge, huge programs that cost a lot of money. And, and they are not part of the regular budgetary process. So, you know, we just saw the president, you know, offer his budget. And then there's going to be this kind of back and forth on the appropriations bills. Medicare and Social Security aren't part of that process. They're mandatory spending. That's It's not discretionary. But a lot of what people care about are actually the discretionary spending items, the things that we do debate year after year. And if mandatory spending kind of continues to grow, it can eat away at the opportunities we have to spend money on other things. So that's the first thing, that we see that this cohort we see that this cohort of people who are you know, 14 to 35, they have a lot of priorities on the policy side that are in this discretionary budget side, but they're not thinking about 
the if the budget is a pie, there's only so much there, then you know what happens when mandatory spending keeps growing and it crowds out some of the discretionary spending that you can do. So that's kind of the wonky answer. But the other answer is, look, the the things that you mentioned, Medicare, Social Security, student loans, those are things that we cannot have a comprehensive conversation about them on Instagram or in a tweet or on Facebook. That really requires a sustained conversation with a lot of really reliable, good information. And so we think our organization is, because of our approach and the way that we do this, is uniquely positioned to facilitate that conversation. And we also know that most people, uh, that there are real people on the other side of Social Security and Medicare. There are people who are getting those benefits. There are real people on the other side of student loans who are struggling to pay those back. And so these are programs where we think about them a lot of times in the abstract, because maybe I'm not taking out student loans right now, or maybe you're not collecting Medicare or Social Security. But if we neglect to have the conversation about them and think about how to continue to refine and improve and make sure we can deliver on these programs, there are real people on the other end who are going to be harmed. And so that's and and so you combine that with the fact that we're just not really having a conversation about those issues. We felt like it was important to focus on those. The other thing is that you know Social Security and Medicare have some issues, as do student loans. Um, the Medicare and Social Security in terms of their financing. And that is, people tend to think of those problems as the kinds of things that people 65 and older ought to be thinking about because they collect those programs or they, they are um, using those services. Uh, but actually, especially if we make incremental changes along the way, people over 65 are not going to see a real change in those programs. The people who are going to have to reckon with that are people who are, for lack of a better term, in the millennial or the Generation Z generations. That's where we're going to kind of reach crunch time and some decisions are going to have to be made. And we think that people within those those age groups should have access to reliable information, should be able to start thinking about what their preferences are now so that when we get to the point that we have to make decisions, they're prepared. They're prepared to know what they think, how they want to vote, and they're prepared to engage leadership in a conversation. And so the issues that Free the Facts emphasizes certainly aren't new, but like you said, we rarely have these conversations about them, or an Instagram post doesn't cover them, and a media news cycle is not dedicated to them. So how hopeful are you that we will find policy solutions to these issues before it's too late? I am far more hopeful now than I was seven years ago. So when I worked in uh, in institutional politics and when I worked in uh, you know in in the Senate, you can see how, especially within the current political climate, it can be really hard to get things done. Uh, but I, most of my friends who still work in politics always say to me, you know, oh, how are you feeling? You go to college campuses. Is it, you know, how's it out there? <laughs> and I say, as if it's some faraway place that they couldn't just go visit on their own. And I say, you know, I feel great. <laughs> I feel really good. I mean, I, I feel really inspired and optimistic when I, I've been out and able to meet so many students who will show up on a Tuesday night to talk about Social Security, not because they want an internship from us, not because, but just because they saw it on a sign and they said, hey, I should really know more about that. That's, I mean, that's a level of civic engagement that I think far surpasses really any generation, but definitely any generation since the 1960s. And so I, I feel good when you have Americans who are really engaged and, you know, I'll have students who come up to me and they say, this isn't my major, I'm an engineering major, but I thought 
maybe I should come and find out what this all of this is about, that really tells you something. They're not showing up because it's extra credit. They're not showing up because it's the thing that they're studying. They're showing up because they're American citizens. They take their responsibility to be an educated voter seriously. And they're willing to take time in college on a Tuesday night to show up and talk with a social security expert or a Medicare expert. I mean, that is a pretty incredible thing when you really think about it. So if that, you know, that experience is basically said, we're going to said to me in any event, we're going to be fine. I think we're going to be fine. I think the emerging leadership that we're seeing off of college campuses these days is pretty incredible. And uh, and I've been really fortunate to know and to work with a lot of uh, a lot of leaders that are on college campuses or recent graduates and just now getting into public service. I, I feel like the country is going to be really we're going to be just fine in their hands. Just fine works for us. <laughs> uh, so to close it out um, here at Fly on the Wall, we like to end on a lighthearted note. So we are now okay. entering the lightning round phase of our questions. We're going to give you three quick questions okay. and quick answers. First things that comes to mind. Okay. Um, first off, um, you know you spent some time teaching in college. You obviously run an organization that visits college campuses. But what is the best course that you took in college? The best course I took in college, here's what I will tell you. Don't take a course, take a professor. Mm. That's my piece of advice uh, because I've seen a lot of professors take a course that on the description side looked amazing and then I took it and I thought I don't know how this didn't go well based on the description and then I've also seen a lot of really great professors take classes that I thought were going to be horrible and I was going to have to slog my way through and make them incredibly enjoyable so uh, when I, I will give a shout out that when I was an undergraduate uh, there was a professor Dale Urbeck at Boston College and he was in the communication department but he was exactly at the nexus of everything I wanted to study in the world um, um, which is that he was interested in communication, but he looked at rhetoric and debate and uh, and kind of really all of the places in which communication and politics and government intersect. And so I took a writing intensive course. I actually took all, all he taught were writing intensive courses. So I only needed two to graduate. I took, I think, four with him. They all had 20 page papers. And my favorite was the history of presidential debates. And as a speech writing and public speaking expert, what is one great piece of advice you would give to someone who has to speak in front of a large crowd? Okay, so if you're afraid of speaking in public, which it, most people are, it's you know it ranks up there. There are actually people who are more afraid of speaking in public than death when you look at some of the surveys, which is really uh, upsetting, actually. So what I always say to people, I always find students in my speech writing and in my public speaking classes would be really nervous. And I would say to them, it should be a comfort to you to know that uh, most studies say that within 24 hours, an audience will only remember about a third of what you said. And so even if you spent the entire time making a complete idiot out of yourself, they'd only remember a third of the idiot that you were. Uh, and so it really is not, it's huge to you, but audiences, you know, things will, it's really just kind of about an impression and, and just move on. It's, it's not life or death. Uh, if you're scared about the opposite thing, which is that no one will remember you, I would say to remember that uh, that humans are storytelling animals. They respond well to narrative. And if you want people to remember things and you want it to become sticky, tell them a story. Mm. And last question. Um, if you could pick one trivia category uh, that you would get every question right in, what trivia category would that be? Sports. Mm. 
I know nothing about sports. <laughs> nothing about sports. And mostly I think it would be really fun for all of a sudden me to blow everyone away at Trivial Pursuit in sports. No one would see that coming. <laughs> Boston sports in particular or? Sports generally. But wow. no, I know nothing about any of the sports mm. in anywhere I've ever lived. <laughs> I have a funny story about that actually. So um, I think every speechwriter has a story about a time where you know, you write enough speeches, and especially if they're nationally uh, broadcast, at some point you're going to do something and, and you're going to kind of mess it up. And, uh, and so I can remember I was working for Sarah Palin, and Sarah Palin, as you'll recall, was her big line was, uh, you know, that she was basically, a, you know, she was a hockey mom, right? And uh, she used to do this whole joke about, you know, being a hockey mom and how aggressive they were. And so it's not surprising that hockey made it into a lot of the opening parts of her remarks. And I know nothing about sports at all. Definitely not hockey. And so I would rely on the advanced people who are the people on the campaign who go and they get everything set up days before. They read the paper. They let you know kind of what's going on on the ground so that as a speechwriter, I can tailor especially the top part of the remarks to the audience. So she was speaking in, uh, in Philadelphia. And then with that night was going out into Pittsburgh and was going to drop the puck at the, at the, the hockey game. And I said to the advanced guy, should I make a reference at the very top that, you know, here she is, hockey mom, you know, here in a hockey state, know everybody loves their hockey. And tonight I'm going to go and I'm going to drop the puck at this game. And they said, oh, that'll kill. That'll be great. <laughs> and she was in a stadium of, I mean, it must have been 10,000 people. It was an open air stadium. And I waited back in the staff van, but I could hear everything that was going on because it was open air. And so I'm sitting there prepping for the next speech that she was going to give. And I've got the door open and I'm listening. And I know kind of generally where she is on the remarks. And I know she's getting to the hockey part. And I'm thinking to myself, it's going to kill. This is going to be great. And, uh, you know, this guy, she's going to get some applause. She'll feel good. She can go into the remarks feeling strong. And no, as it turns out, the Pittsburgh and the Philadelphia teams hate each other. And so <laughs> she got up and she gave a shout out to, you know, and tonight I'm going to. And I hear the collective sound of 10,000 people just boo <laughs> on national television. And I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what, ha what happened? <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I get a call. And so I saw the advance guy later and he said to me, you know, hey, I'm sorry about that, you know, and uh, and she was a, she was awesome. I mean, she came off and I looked at her. I said, I am so sorry. I, I had it on good authority that that was a good thing to say. And she looked at me and she says, I, ah, it's fine. I got him back, you know, and she just got in the car and didn't worry about it. But then I had to call my boss, Matthew Scully, back at headquarters. And I said to Matthew, I am so sorry, you know, and he said, hey, it happens to all of us, you know, and he shared a couple of stories with me. But if I so if I could know anything, I think sports would be, mm. <laughs> especially as a speechwriter, sports would be really helpful. Know your policy, know your sports. Know your, know your sports trivia. Yes. So, you, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly Thank you, Ball. guys. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thanks for catching our convo this week. You can connect with the Fly on social media by following at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Or email us at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. You're also going to want to subscribe to our podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Just search Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and review. Can't wait to fly with you next week.